Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of If Not Us. We are the podcast that talks to people that are making a difference in, in the world. Uh, today, I've got the pleasure of speaking with Michael German. Mike, nice to see you. Nice to see you. Sorry about that. So um, today's episode is really about, um, really topical, and it's about rooting out white supremacy in law enforcement. And just a, a quick background and introduction to, to, to Mike. Um, I first learned of Mike last year when I read a, a report that he published um, on the topic um, called Hidden in Plain Sight racism, white supremacy, and far-right military in law enforcement. And um, this was last August that you published the report. And um, as we continue to see um, police, uh, you know, murders of, of Black people in this country by police officers and, and other, um, you know, forms of, of racism, it um, just felt really topical. And I'm so happy that you could join us and just talk a bit about your research and your report and really just on the, on the topic. So um, before we get started, I, I've got to ask um, just with the, um, you know, breaking news, anytime there's breaking news, we, we've got to ask. So we just had the verdict where Derek uh, Chauvin was found guilty uh, of, of murdering George Floyd. Were you surprised by that verdict? No, I, I wasn't surprised simply because the evidence that was immediately made public after the killing was so obvious that yeah. I think you saw, you know, if not for the first time, certainly that for the first time where it was consistent that law enforcement leaders were coming out denouncing this kind yeah. of, of activity. So. I think it did create a siege change and obviously the public reaction uh, demanding change was significant. Uh, so I'm hopeful that some change will be made and somewhat surprised and disappointed in how some police departments are responding so negatively. You know, it's amazing that we have this mass effort where the public is coming out demanding uh, reform of the police departments and the police are, you know, they're coming out to protest police violence and racism. And too many police departments are reacting with violence and, and meted out in a very biased manner. So right. I think that there's a reckoning coming and, you know, to, to the extent that you have a lot of attention on the defund police movement. You also have the police acting in a way that's less justifiable. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm hopeful that there, in the end, reasonable minds will uh, come to a decision about how we're going to change this institution to make it more focused on the public safety of all of the people in the public. Um, uh, but there's a lot of work to do. Right, right. Yeah, certainly uh, it seemed like a, a positive <clears throat> step in, um, in the ruling, um, but uh, agreed. So let's, um, let's talk more about a lot of that work that, that needs sure. to be done. Um, just by um, way of introduction, I, I just wanted to share with everyone listening a bit about you um, to really um, set the stage for your authority on this topic. So you are currently a fellow uh, with the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center 
for justice at NYU's law school. You previously worked for ACLU. And prior to that, you served for 16 years in the FBI as a special agent. So you certainly know the, the topic of law enforcement. And um, what I found really interesting when I first spoke with you was about the type of work that you did specifically related to domestic terrorists, um, white supremacy, um, dating all the way back to the Rodney King verdict and and then also uh, with threats from far-right militias uh, in the Oklahoma City bombing all the way back in 1995. So if you right. could just share a bit about those experiences to sort of set the stage for your, your, um, your experience on this topic, that would be wonderful. Sure. Um, and, you know, my, my education in white supremacy in the United States is a little unusual <clears throat> because I started studying the issue uh, so that I could uh, convincingly portray myself as somebody who was uh, open to recruitment by white supremacists. <clears throat> and it was a very uh, fascinating experience on a lot of levels, but it really taught me that a lot of our impressions of these groups and the philosophies and theologies and ideologies they follow uh, aren't, aren't accurate. and and it really requires a better, <laughs> excuse me, a better understanding of how these groups operate and, and what motivates them uh, if we wanna build actual solutions. And, and my first undercover case, as you mentioned, was uh, as white supremacist groups were uh, trafficking in, in illegal weapons, preparing for further unrest after the first, uh, uh, series of, of disturbances after the Rodney King verdict, uh, the, the verdict against the LAPD officers. There was, if you recall back in 92, that after the state trial ended in an acquittal, the federal government stepped in with civil rights charges and the white supremacist groups felt that that would also end up in an acquittal, which would trigger more violence that they could take better advantage of by preparing with heavier weapons. Uh, so I went undercover and spent about a year undercover uh, in those groups trafficking in, in, in these illegal weapons and uh, solved some bombings and, and uh, it was a very impactful case. Uh, and then again, after the Oklahoma City bombing, <clears throat> uh, a lot of militia groups were again trying to use that as an opportunity to expand the type of, of uh, unrest that they wanted to foment, uh, and I went undercover in far-right militia groups in the Pacific Northwest. Wow, so over the past couple of decades, um, that experience <laughs> and, and others led you to writing this report this past summer, which um, was um, mind-opening to, to me and, and disturbing and scary, um, and now that we see more and more violence um, committed by police that, that's in the news. Um, it's as, as sad as each incident is, uh, as once you get educated on the topic, it isn't surprising, um, which is probably the most sad part about it. Um, right. And, and what led me to, to write the report, it was actually, <clears throat> excuse me, the third in a series. <clears throat> so I, I wrote a report 
um, <clears throat> talking about the federal response to white supremacist violence called Wrong Priorities on Fighting Terrorism. And then another one about the state and local response called Fighting Far-Right Violence and Hate Crimes. Um, and there was a push to, to empower law enforcement, perhaps with a new domestic terrorism statute, perhaps with uh, enhancements to the hate crimes laws. <clears throat> and what I wanted to make sure was clear is that the police are part of the problem in this area. Mm -hmm. And empowering the police has, has been the, the response for decades, and that hasn't worked. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have to understand how law enforcement is actually influenced by white supremacy and far-right militancy to understand how we can uh, reform the, the system of law enforcement so that, uh, so that they understand this problem much differently, particularly within law enforcement itself. Yeah. So um, for the, the folks that are listening that haven't read the report, and we'll include a link um, to the report, but also the op-ed that you wrote that helps summarize it. Um, and, uh, you know, I encourage everyone to, to read this information and educate um, themselves. Um, as I said, when I read it, I was blown away and, you know, and, and, and scared, quite frankly, just at how prevalent um, white supremacy and connections to far right militia uh, within law enforcement is. Um, can you just share some details just about how pervasive this this problem is? Uh, sure. In, and instead of uh, prevalent, I, I'd use the word persistent, right? I, I don't think anyone would suggest that it's anywhere near a majority of police officers who, who are sympathetic with white supremacy or far-right militancy. You know, this is a, a, rem, a relatively small, even tiny segment of law enforcement, um, but it's persistent and it's tolerated. Uh, and it's well known within law enforcement. As an FBI agent in the early 90s going undercover into these groups, I was working on a joint terrorism task force with other federal, state, and local police departments. And all of us were warned that we had to be very careful about how, how we shared information within law enforcement about this operation because there were sympathizers in law enforcement who might uh, betray the case and, and put me in danger. And there wasn't any pushback from that. Everyone acknowledged that that was true. Uh, and after I left the FBI in 2004, uh, there was a 2006 memo documenting the infiltration of law enforcement by white supremacists that was released through a Freedom of Information Act request. And then again in 2015, uh, the FBI's counterterrorism guide warned agents working domestic terrorism cases against white supremacists and far-right militias that the subjects of their investigations, so not just some white supremacist who has uh, a belief, but the subject of domestic terrorism investigations often have active links to law enforcement. And it, it instructed agents to modify the way, the tactics they used in investigating terrorism cases when it pertained to white supremacists and fluoride militias because of this sympathy in law enforcement for these ideologies. And it's, it's 
uh, uh, hard to understand how the FBI would acknowledge this and acknowledge that it's serious enough a problem for them to alter their tactics. And yet they don't have a strategy for how they protect the public. They wanna protect the integrity of their investigations, but there's nothing in that document that talks about what agents should do to protect the public from these police officers who have active links to uh, subjects of domestic terrorism investigations. And that's astounding. The FBI has a jurisdiction over civil rights violations by police officers, yet you don't see them connecting the dots to make it clear that if there are white supremacists in law enforcement, they pose a direct threat to the communities that they patrol. Wow, that's crazy. Um, why, why do you think that is, that there is no strategy to combat that? Um, <clears throat> I think there's a, a difficulty in our society in acknowledging the, the extent to which white supremacist ideas still animate our, our government and many of our civic organizations, uh, and certainly our government institutions, and it's, it's most identifiable in law enforcement, <clears throat> right? We see disparities in the way uh, police do their job, you know, from who they decide to stop, who they frisk, who they search, who they arrest, how they charge, and, and it impacts the court system as well because we see disparities in the sentences that judge, uh, judges meet out in these cases. So, uh, uh, and particularly in the way police violence is, is used uh, or uses of force. So th that those disparities have been acknowledged for decades and yet there hasn't really been a reckoning with why that's so. And you know, it's not just law enforcement. You know, Congress is disproportionately white. Uh, corporate boards are disproportionately white. You know, it's it's something that that I learned going undercover with these groups is they understand how uh, these historical uh, periods where white supremacy was the law, right? Certainly during the slave era, uh, era during Jim Crow. Uh, hasn't really changed that much. You know, the civil rights movement made it so that uh, it's, it's no longer enforced by the law, uh, but it's still traditionally enforced, you know, and that was through sundown towns where people of color were not allowed to stay in certain towns. It was law enforcement that enforced those laws, right, and, and those traditions, um, and, and that's still has an impact, right? The FBI remains predominantly a white male organization. Uh, many law enforcement agencies across the country are much whiter than the, the communities that they police. So I think it, it takes understanding how prevalent these white supremacist ideas are in all of our society before we can really focus on how we improve any particular institution, particularly law enforcement. And I think that's really the big blind spot to where the response we see to some kind of example of police racism uh, is implicit bias training. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I, I do in the report is quote three separate police trainers who do implicit bias training, who openly acknowledge that they avoid 
uh, discussing explicit bias, right? Open and obvious bias, where it's hard for me to imagine how effective implicit bias, unconscious bias training can be when we're not acknowledging the ele elephant in the room that there is still explicit bias in law enforcement. And, and so I hoped that this report would bring this uh, issue that is well known in law enforcement out, out to public view so we can discuss it in a way that we can actually address the problem rather than pretending that the problem is some unconscious bias. Yeah. Yeah, one of the topics in the report that I found really interesting was just around uh, First Amendment rights and right. um, someone, um, First Amendment rights allow people to say things, post things on their social media, um, you know, whatever they want to, to an extent, but there seemed to be some, um, some history uh, in the courts to suggest that that's, it's not acceptable, it's not covered under First Amendment rights for police officers who are charged, uh, who are tasked with protecting a community um, to have um, obvious racial bias against members of the community. So um, I'm curious to just to hear a little bit more about that and how right. do you think that that could play into the solution here? Right, and to be clear, uh, police officers and other government officials have First Amendment rights. They can say what they want. They don't have a First Amendment right, however, to be employed as a government employee or a police officer. Uh, so what the Supreme Court has held is that, that government agencies, particular, particularly uh, agencies like law enforcement, have a mission that can be undermined uh, by the public speech of its members and therefore has an authority to regulate that. And yes, you can go out and have these associations and beliefs all you want, but that doesn't mean you get to keep your police job because right. the police job entails uh, uh, treating everyone equally and under the law and, and that's a critical part of the mission. Um, so those rights are somewhat curbed for, in that employment situation. So, uh, but, what I would suggest is that we don't really have to get to the First Amendment issues because they're, what law enforcement leaders should focus on is behavior, right? If there is a police officer who in, is racist in his heart and goes home at night and, and reads Mein Kampf uh, and, and other white supremacist materials and, and uh, harbors those thoughts, but you would never know it by his behavior, uh, either towards his colleagues in law enforcement or towards the public. I'm less concerned about that person and their ideology, right? There are plenty of examples of actual racist misconduct. This isn't something that law enforcement needs to delve into the deep recesses of every officer's mind. You just have to address the, the behavior, right? Right. Police officers know who the racists among them are, mm -hmm. right? They hear them talking in the squad room. They see their behavior on the street. They see how they treat other police officers. They often complain about this, right? They're discrimination complaints, but the law enforcement agencies and the, and the state and local federal government treat those discrimination com complaints as something different, right? That's something we defend against. So we send that over to legal, not recognizing that that's what in law enforcement and other contexts, we call a clue, 
right? Mm -hmm. That you have a problem that you need to address. And you know, it wasn't a surprise to me after what we saw at the US Capitol uh, and that there were some allegations that some Capitol police officers were sympathetic to or cooperative with the Raiders that they looked back and saw there for decades, black Capitol police officers had been reporting discrimination on the force, right? Perhaps if we had challenged that discrimination more aggressively and responded to it, uh, we wouldn't have that continuing problem festering. So it's, it's not just the police officers though. The public certainly knows who the racist officers are because they're the ones impacted by them. Right. And they make complaints and those discrimination complaints again, go over to the legal department and we, and we defend against those complaints rather than recognizing that's an opportunity to clean up the force. Right. And we should look at those cases and recognize uh, that, that we need to address these problems and not just fight the, the, the legal cases. Um, and, and the other issue that we see, I mean, what we see often when the public finds out some police officer has been at a Klan rally or otherwise engaged with white supremacist groups or, or far-right militias is that the police department knew about it long before the public found out. Right. And it was only after the public finds out that, that the law enforcement agency responds. And their argument is often that they're concerned about their First Amendment rights. But it's fascinating to me because their rights, wherever that legal description plays out, were the same whether the public knew about it or not. And yet somehow they have the ability to fire them after the public finds out about it when they felt they didn't have the power to fire them before the public found out, which, which doesn't make any sense. It's more that it's tolerated. And as long as it doesn't become a public scandal, they'll allow that to continue. But that is the biggest part of the problem because that's a message to other police officers that you can engage in this behavior. You can express these ideas. You can treat your fellow officers in the public in a racist manner because it's tolerated. Uh, so what, you know, there, these cases happen on a spectrum. So it's often very difficult uh, in some cases to justify firing somebody, right? And that's what we see often that, okay, somebody made some racist comment on a social media page. Is that something we can, on their off time when they were, it had nothing to do with their police activity. Uh, you know, perhaps that's not something we can fire them for. And then they decide, okay, we can't fire them. So go about your normal business rather than recognizing, no, as a police leader, you still have a responsibility to protect the public. And right. there are many ways to mitigate that potential threat. There are plenty of jobs in law enforcement where you don't have uh, direct contact with the public, right? You can put that officer in a position where they don't have contact with the public to protect the public. You can uh, yeah, institute better training you can uh, put more aggressive supervision over that officer to make sure when they do have interactions with the public that they're being overseen in a way that would identify very quickly any, any problem. Mm -hmm. So uh, what, what I argue in the report is the police departments don't have to wait until there's a scandal. They need to set policies, let the police officers in their department know where the, the lines are, make bright lines. That's what's fair to the police officers and we'll make 
the, the litigation that follows a firing uh, uh, more successful for the police department if these laws or these policies are, are published in a way that the police officers very clear on what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. Yeah, that, that brings up a really great question for me, uh, just around like not having clarity around what you can and can't do as a police officer or anyone in law enforcement as it relates to racist comments, racist behavior. Um, why, why isn't there uh, a policy? Should there be a national policy very clearly related uh, to racist behavior and what penalties might be? Um, I, I, I don't think there needs to be a national policy, right? Every, every police department has different problems and different state and local laws and regulations that govern their police department, but there needs to be a national strategy, right? Mm -hmm. We have to recognize that, that this is a persistent problem that requires a persistent response. And you know, as it exists now, the, the whether or how any particular police department responds uh, is arbitrary. And how the federal government responds is arbitrary. You know, the, again, the FBI and the Justice Department have civil rights statutes that apply to uh, conduct under color of law, police brutality, police racism. So they can bring these cases and they need to do it in a strategic manner that both, it, it, what the national strategy does having been an agent is it, it forces accountability on every FBI office. So every special agent in charge out in the field understands that, okay, this is something my bosses back in DC are going to be asking me about on a regular basis. So I'm going to prioritize these cases uh, to make sure that when there's an a, a, a allegation of, of police brutality and violation of somebody's civil rights, I take that case seriously and I look deeper than just can I prove this one case to does this police department have a deeper problem that that the federal government has a responsibility of protecting the public from. Yeah. And, and that's the part that's, that's not done. And in fact, when you look at the, the performance of the Justice Department in these uh, uh, police brutality cases, the vast majority of cases the FBI investigates are declined for prosecution. And you know, no doubt that these are difficult cases, right? The police officer is somebody in a community that uh, they see as a, a defender in many cases. So it's not, I'm not suggesting that they are, they're, this is easy to do, uh, but the problem is the, the response has become pro forma, right? There's actually a, a, a template. The FBI agent gets the complainant who comes in and says, I was beaten by a police officer. They pull the police report that says, oh, this person attacked the police officer not vice versa. You have these conflicting statements, put them in a package, send it up to the prosecutor who says, I can't prove this case where there are two conflicting versions of the truth. Uh, I'm going to decline for prosecution and that's it. Rather than saying, oh, you know, what do we know about this police department? What do we know about these officers involved? You know, how can we untangle what is a persistent problem in law enforcement using these cases as an opportunity to do the investigations? Yeah. 
yeah, it seems like that missing national strategy um, is paramount because if you deal with it on a one-off basis, you've got one side of the story, the other side of the story. Whereas what about some, some general guidelines that say things like, hey, you can't be a member of uh, a group like the Oath Keepers and serve in your local police department. Um, you know, I don't know that those, uh, maybe those are handled on a county by county basis, but it's crazy to me that those things uh, can happen simultaneously. Right, and that's where it's the responsibility of every police and city leader to make sure that they have effective policies in place. I mean, I think it would be uh, difficult to uh, ban association with certain groups, right? I mean, one thing you have to understand about these white supremacist groups is, and far-right militant groups is they've been around so long because they're very uh, adaptive to whatever response is directed towards them. So one of the things that they do regularly is anytime they get bad press, you know, one of their members goes out and does a horrible thing, they change their names, right? So it would just create a revolving door where you're constantly updating that list and taking groups off and putting groups on. And that's not really an effective way of doing it, where again, what we need to do is focus on the behavior and look at those discrimination complaints, look at those civil rights complaints, look at those uh, police violence complaints and say, how do we address this persistent problem? Uh, and one of the most important elements today in law enforcement, it's more dangerous to your career to report a colleague who's engaged in racist misbehavior than it is to engage in racist misbehavior. And that's what needs to change. And we need stronger whistleblower protection laws and we need better leadership that encourages that kind of reporting and rewards it rather than defends against it and tries to suppress it. You know, the, the sooner and, and uh, more fulsomely some police leader brings out some internal problem and exposes it and addresses it, the more they'll rebuild the public trust that, uh, that they need to do their job effectively. Yeah. So um, we've sort of been talking about this for a, a little bit now, but um, to kind of more clearly um, define the solutions, you know, you mentioned the national strategy, um, some very specific right. things around whistleblower protections. Um, obviously, we want to be thinking about um, the, the way to solve some of these issues is um, are in, in your mind is the biggest need um, laws is this Congress is this something that needs to be passed at a national level and pushed down. What, what do the solutions look like here right so so Congress has pretty much already done its job right they've written these civil rights laws. Okay. What they need to do is. Uh, conduct more aggressive oversight, right? The data is available. They need to get the data about what's going on in the, the civil rights investigations of police officers to find out why the, the uh, declination rate is so high. What, what is uh, flawed with the way the FBI investigates these cases that leads to so many declinations? Uh, and how, you know, the FBI knows and reports every year how many bank robberies occur. They say they know how the bank robber got into the bank. 
They know what, what kind of weapon they carried. If they carried a weapon, they know how they got out of the bank. They know how much money they got from the bank. That's because they gather that data. What they don't do is gather data about police racism. And you, in every field office around the country, FBI agents work hand in glove with state and local law enforcement. They know who the problem officers are, and certainly the, the, the people they work with know who the problem officers are. And they can address this problem far more effectively simply by documenting what they're doing and what they know, uh, rather than turning a blind eye to it until it becomes a public scandal. Mm -hmm. Is that something that the FBI can make, the leadership at the FBI could make a decision to do, or does there, is there a reason why that hasn't happened? Uh, yes, there's, it is something that, that leadership at the FBI and the Department of Justice can do. And, okay. and again, I think part of the reason that they haven't is because this systemic racism still persists within right. government agencies, and it's easier to think this, these are all problems of, of the past. And, you know, we're now an egalitarian society that uh, uh, honors everybody's rights and, and, you know, pat ourselves on the back about it and, and treat these cases as anomalies rather than as a persistent problem. Um, uh, it, Congress can certainly do a better job of demanding information from the FBI and the Justice Department. One big problem, uh, uh, for example, in domestic terrorism cases, uh, the FBI hides its data about how it, how it devotes resources to white supremacists versus less violent groups uh, like environmentalists who haven't committed any deadly violence in the United States, at least not in recent decades. Uh, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act of 2020 demanded that the FBI publish data about how it devotes its resources. Uh, that report was due last June. It still has not been produced, right? Congress has very powerful tools to compel compliance from executive branch agencies, but it has been reticent to use them. And so if Congress becomes more aggressive in demanding this information or else withholding funds or withholding uh, uh, nominee uh, 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 hearings to so that uh, what's called the SES level, senior executive service, FBI special agents in charge need to get uh, Senate approval to their nominations. If these come to a halt because the FBI does not provide the data as, as Congress demands to do its oversight job, you'll see the FBI responding much more quickly, right? And, right. and so Congress needs to get more aggressive with, with its oversight. Uh, but these are things the attorney general and the FBI director can change tomorrow. Okay. Uh, and you know the fact that they haven't is to me a good example of why we shouldn't empower law enforcement more uh, to address these problems because they would use that power to target other groups rather than to focus on this issue just the way they do today, targeting environmentalists, targeting Black Lives Matter protesters rather than focusing on the most violent threats, which are white supremacists and far-right militants. Right. Um, 
So the last question around change and how we uh, effectively bring about um, the change we're looking for here is related to people. Like just, you know, me, anyone that's listening, you know, what can everyday people do to be a part of the solution here? Um, is it putting pressure on Congress to demand more data? Is uh, you know, getting educated on the topic? Are those the things that people can do or are there other things? Uh, certainly there are other things. I mean, it's often <clears throat> hard uh, it, when you live out somewhere in the country to think about, you know, calling your member of Congress and trying to get them to impact some national policy where this is an issue that, that your city government and your state government can also address. And, uh, you know, one of the um, uh, efforts that I've... Uh, been involved in 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 many locations portland oregon san francisco and oakland um, because of the way the fbi uses its existing terrorism authorities to harass um, muslim communities south asian communities other uh, communities of color local activists have have uh, impressed upon local governments that they need to break from the fbi joint terrorism task forces so in, in Portland, San Francisco, and Oakland, the police departments have pulled out of the Joint Terrorism Task Forces because the FBI's policies are too lax that would allow them to engage in behavior that state and local laws prevent. And, and the only way we have accountability over our local police is if we can maintain control of those police. So there are methods to go through local government to affect national policy. And, you know, there is an important role for city government to play in controlling the policies of the police department with regard to um, uh, white supremacist and far-right militancy in their police departments. S similarly with the state, you know, you have state representatives that can impact these issues. Uh, mm -hmm. So there are many areas, but it's making sure that that your local and state representatives know your concerns about these issues as well. And right. They react to what the public demands. And we just need to make sure that the public understands the nature of this problem uh, so that they can tell their representatives that they wanna see a solution. So is it the local representatives or is it the local law enforcement or is it both that people could potentially reach out to? So, so that's a great question. And I think that highlights part of the problem. I mean, one of the things I've really been disappointed about since the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement started that you have, and, and particularly as it picked up steam after the, the homicide of George Floyd, the police killing of George Floyd, that you have this mass public protest of police violence and police racism. And the response is more police violence and uh, often meted out in a very biased manner. So I think we have a, an issue where the, the police are, no, are, are trying to resist the public demands for change. Yeah. And that's a recipe for more conflict. And the city and state governments need to get more control over these police agencies to make sure that they are complying with the law. We went through a period in the 1960s and 70s where there were a lot of, of, of 
violent protests and civil disturbances. And there have been a lot of studies about the police reaction to that. And uh, universally what those studies show is a violent police reaction makes the problem worse. Right. So that, that, those, that research is available to police departments in deciding how they respond to the protests today, which are far less violent than anything in the 1960s. Uh, and yet they are responding in exactly the way the research tells them not to, showing up in riot gear, acting very aggressively and indiscriminately uh, uh, using violence against people who, who aren't actually part of the problem. Right. So there's lots that, that we can do and obviously a lot to, of work that needs to be done both at the, the national uh, city state government as well as law enforcement. Um, right. levels. Um, I always think that one of the first solutions is to shine a light on the problem, to create more awareness for what's going on. And, and so for that, I thank you for your report um, and all that you've done to, to publish um, information to, to shine a light on just the, the racism um, that, that exists um, blatantly and, and goes unchecked um, in a lot of cases within law enforcement. Um, I, I'm glad you found it helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll continue to share it every time um, I get questions on this. I share your report um, as the first step for people to, to get educated. We'll share links to that here on this podcast. And if anyone else wants to learn more on the topic, in addition to the report, um, we'll share Mike's Twitter handle to follow more information. I'm sure you'll be doing more research right. and publishing more work. Um, and also just a, a quick plug for a book that you wrote on the topic, uh, Disrupt, Discredit, and Divide, um, How the New FBI Damages Democracy. We'll share a link for that as well. Great. Thank you. Um, so thank you so much, uh, Mike. Appreciate you joining um, and sharing all that you did today. Thanks to everyone for, for listening. Um, if you've got a topic that you'd like to suggest in the future, you can do that at ifnotus.tv. And remember, change belongs to all of us. Uh, if not us, then who? If not now, then when is the theme of our show. So thank you, Mike, for all that you're doing to shine a light on racism and, uh, and militant connections within our law enforcement today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.